Well, I would invite you, as we turn to God's Word, to take your Bible with me and open it to Philippians chapter 1 for this message entitled, Living on Earth as a Citizen of Heaven. This morning, we move to the next section in Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30. The, the theme of Philippians is, say it with me if you remember, rejoice, to live is Christ and to die is gain. From verses 27 down to chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle Paul transitions from talking about his own circumstances to helping believers like you and me consider what it looks like to live as Christ in a world of conflict and opposition. The Philippians is often said, as we've heard often, to be the epistle of joy. It is not that because life is so great and so we should rejoice. Rather, it's because life is hard and full of trouble. In the case of the Church of Philippi, there were conflicts inside the church and there was opposition from outside the church. And instead of getting discouraged or depressed at the difficulties that surround us, Paul calls these believers and us today to, to look at circumstances through the lens of God's Word. And when we do that, we will find that the Holy Spirit produces in us emotions of delight and strength. And that's what we call joy. And so in this letter, Paul doesn't reveal the details of the internal conflicts other than naming two individuals in chapter 4, nor does he get into the details of what is the external opposition that's facing the church. What are, he doesn't get in, in, involved in, in those details. Instead, he focuses on the solution. How the church is to respond to these circumstances is through the pursuit of unity and strength and faithfulness to Christ. And how are they to do that? By remembering who they are. If you're there, follow along as I read verses 27 to 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear to be in me. If you've read the New Testament, you see that first phrase there, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and, and that sounds very familiar to you. It's very familiar, similar to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. It sounds very similar to Colossians 1.10, where Paul prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And though a little bit more wordy, what Paul says here is very closely related to what Paul says to the Thessalonians, that he conducted himself among them the way that he did, quote, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. So this principle of walking worthy is, is a command that Paul gives over and over and over, and so it it demands that we take a careful look and consider what it means for us. What, it, what does it mean to walk worthy? Well, I'll start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to walk in a way where you make yourself worthy of the gospel or of the Lord. In other words, it's not as though you're starting from a deficit and you have to exert effort, you have to live a certain way, you have to do certain things in order to earn credits for yourself so that someday you will be worthy of eternal life. That's the religion of Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and every other Christian cult and man-made religion. So to live worthy does not mean to make yourself worthy. In fact, you'll understand the, what it means to walk worthy when you understand that a synonym 
For the word worthy is commensurate. To walk in a way that is commensurate with your calling. Or you could say, to walk in a way that is consistent with your calling. Or perhaps better, to live in a way that your, your way of life is consistent with all that God has done for you through Christ. This principle of living consistent with your calling or with one's position is well established in society. Many of you will uh, understand this. According to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, quote, any commissioned officer, cadet, or midshipman who is convicted of conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman shall be punished as a court-martial may direct, unquote. What is conduct unbecoming an officer or a gentleman? Well, the UCMJ goes into some detail about that, but we could summarize it to say this. If you don't live according to the standards that the United States military says you ought to live, then that is unbecoming. For example, the UCMJ says, quote, there are certain moral attributes common to the ideal officer and the perfect gentleman a lack of which is indicated by acts of dishonesty, unfair dealing, indecency, indecorum, lawlessness, injustice, or cruelty, unquote. Now in the scripture, we have certain moral attributes that should be common among Christians. Namely, the, the character and righteous standards of the God in whose image we have been made which were demonstrated in the life of Jesus Christ. So when the Lord gives someone spiritual life who has been dead in their trespasses and sins, when he grants them the gift of repentance and, and, and faith to that sinner, he calls that sinner to walk in a new way of life. A, a life that increasingly emulates, follows after parallels, if you will, the life of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord. Now, what the overall meaning of what Paul's saying here is the same between Philippians and those other passages, uh, Paul uses a word here that emphasizes things in a unique way. In the other passages that I mentioned, Paul uses this word translated walk, which that's what it means, walk, but we understand that means just how you live, the way you go about living your life. But here, Paul uses a word that is pregnant with meaning. meaning. What's translated, you can see it there in your Bible, conduct yourselves. That's one word which speaks very specifically to your citizenship, in fact, the New Living Translation is the only English translation that brings out this emphasis. And it says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven. The word heaven is not involved in this particular word, but that seems to be the implication. It speaks of living in light of your citizenship. Because the word just refers to citizenship, there are those who would say that Paul is referring to living according to your earthly citizenship, in this case for the Philippians, your Roman citizenship, maybe he would say to us, live as faithful American citizens. But I think the context would point us in the direction of saying, no, 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 Paul's emphasis is live as a citizen of heaven. The Philippian residents took pride in their Roman citizenship. It was in the year 42 B.C., when the Battle of Philippi saw the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the Roman Empire. After that battle, many Roman soldiers retired, and instead of going back to wherever they came from, they just decided to stay right there and, and live in Philippi. And so the city became a Roman colony, and uh, it came with it, granted, it was granted special privileges and status. And even though Philippi was far from Rome, it was Roman through and through. And it became a great source of pride among its citizens that they were Romans indeed. In fact, it was pride in Roman citizenship that actually led to Paul and Silas's imprisonment the first time that they were in Philippi. Acts 16 records the accusations against Paul and Silas. The men of the city said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing the city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans 
to accept or practice. There's nothing wrong with being a Roman, Roman citizen, of course. Several times in the book of Acts, we see that Paul pulls out his Roman passport to avoid unnecessary and unjust treatment and seek justice. But as Paul is writing to these Philippian believers, he knows that they take pride in their Roman citizenship, just as some of us might take pride in our American citizenship and take advantage of that in in the most appropriate of ways. But as Christians, Paul reminds them that they are not to live up to the ideals of Roman standards, but according to the heavenly standards of righteousness. Being a citizen of heaven, is not far from his mind. We even read in chapter 3, verse 20, as we've seen, he reminds them that for our citizenship is in heaven. So here in verse 27, he calls them to live on the basis of their citizenship. Not based on their Roman citizenship, but based on their heavenly citizenship. And this this is confirmed when when he goes on to say, uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the gospel that made you citizens of God's kingdom. Heirs of all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and co-heirs with Christ. Live consistent with that citizenship. You know, sometimes we often live as citizens of our earthly kingdom more than we do as citizens of our heavenly city. Too often we find ourselves at odds with those who are citizens uh, of heaven because we prioritize our citizenship on earth. Maybe we elevate to importance our participation in particular political parties. We divide over things that are so petty as well as things are important, but denying or or ignoring our heavenly citizenship, we don't do the hard work of uniting and working through our differences in light of our common citizenship. The the dynamic, the, the tendency to divide over earthly things is not new. Paul knew that tendency. It resided within the Philippian church. And so knowing that tendency, Paul writes to them to call them to make their citizenship in heaven the unifying principle of their life, and as such, to stand firm in the face of conflict and opposition. Opposition. We know that the church collectively faces opposition, and that many individual Christians face opposition. Jesus promised, in the world you have trib- tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Paul even affirmed that when he said elsewhere, Anyone who would desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. So trouble, difficulty, conflict, opposition, these are all expressions that refer to the experience of the church corporately and our individual lives. And so the Philippian church was experiencing these things, and we do as well. The wrong response to difficulty is to shrink back, to to retreat, to give up and get discouraged. We should not waver in our faith and be tossed to and fro by the winds of hardship. Instead, we should stand firm, Paul says here. Hold fast. It's the same idea of what he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So these believers in Philippi were to stand their ground and not give the devil a foothold in their church. Now, as you can see here where he says there in the middle of verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul doesn't know if he's going to make it back to Philippi. He certainly wants to. He doesn't know exactly when he's going to get out of prison and what will happen after that. So he contents himself with the reality that he's going to get a report. And he says, Church of Philippi, I want to hear a particular report. And that is, I want to hear that you are standing firm. And again, how do we do that? How do we stand firm? It's by remembering that because we are citizens of heaven, we are not alone. We are 
fellow citizens with the saints. And so the way to live as citizens of heaven, the way to stand firm is to stand united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what Paul does in the rest of this text is he gives us three ways to stand firm and stand united with one another. Three ways, if you will, to live on earth as a citizen of heaven. He calls them, first of all, to stand united in a common spirit. We see that in verse 27. Stand united in a common spirit. Secondly, he calls them to stand united with a common purpose in verses 27 to 28. To stand united with a common purpose. And then third, he calls them to stand united under a common experience in verses 29 to 30. To stand united under a common experience. So let's walk through those in our remaining time. First of all, he says, stand united in a common spirit. Look again at verse 23, excuse me, verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. They are to stand firm in one spirit, he says. Now, unless you're looking at an NIV, your Bible has the word spirit as a lowercase s, making it a parallel statement with the with one mind. The idea there would be that with with a common spirit, we are to have a common attitude, a a common goal. We're to have something like a school spirit, a, a church spirit, if you will, or a spirit de corps. And many, many take it that way, as our translations do. And that's not an unreasonable interpretation. But the word spirit could also have a capital S if we treated it differently. The word is same in the Greek, and so context always tells you what's being talked about here. So this could be also a reference to the Holy Spirit. And in favor of that view, it's been noted that the word spirit in the New Testament in the, in the sense of an attitude of a group of people sharing the same attitude is not found in the New Testament or in ancient Greek writings of the time. In other words, it's an idiom that we use to have school spirit or the spirit of core, but that's not an idiom in Koine Greek, which is the language of the New Testament. As well, as you look at the phrase, standing firm in one spirit, you can't see it in the English, but the, the grammatical features of that indicate the location where one is standing, not the way in which one is standing. So it's the difference between saying, I'm standing in a building versus I'm standing in solidarity. Where you're standing versus how you're standing. And the grammar hints that in one spirit refers to the fact that we are all standing together with the spirit, in the spirit, if you will, in terms of a location, in terms of a reference to one another. And then, strengthening that as well, is the fact that in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Same idea. He stands firm in the Lord. Here, he seems to be referring to standing firm in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is that believers are to be united in one Holy Spirit. And that's an idea that is common in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12.9 says that we are given gifts by one Spirit. And then Paul goes on to say, Therefore, by one Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And then in Ephesians 2, verse 18 tells us that through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And then chapter 4 of Ephesians says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So the New Testament repeatedly emphasizes, and all of those are Pauline texts, that one spirit refers to the fact that we are all united in the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, Paul's emphasis here in Philippians 1.27 is that as citizens of heaven, 
we must stand firm in our common unity in the Holy Spirit. All true believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed by Him, it says in Ephesians 1. If you will, our citizenship papers have been signed by the Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. When you look at another Christian, you're not just looking at someone who's been made in the image of God as all people are. You are looking at someone whom the Holy Spirit has united to Christ and thus has united to you as well. There is a a bond that exists between you and others indwelled by the Spirit that transcends all earthly differences. The same Holy Spirit that dwells within you dwells within them. The same Holy Spirit that applied the work of redemption to you applied it to them. The same Holy Spirit that adopted you into the family of God adopted them. The same Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin convicts them of sin as well. The same Holy Spirit that is sanctifying you is sanctifying them. The same Holy Spirit that empowers you to live the Christian life empowers them to live the Christian life. The same Holy Spirit that sustains you in trials sustains them as well. And the same Holy Spirit that has secured your eternal salvation has secured theirs as well. Do you get the picture there? We are all one in the Holy Spirit. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places have, uh, have come to us and also belong to those who are of the same Spirit. All of this is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, be diligent, exert effort, work hard, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We already have an essential unity by the Spirit, so let's take great pains to preserve it. So when Paul says here in verse 27, stand firm in one spirit, he means that we are to respond to external opposition and to internal conflict, remembering that we are not alone. But we are united by one spirit in one spirit with one another. So we must band together and not work in opposition to each other. And when we do find ourselves in conflict with others, which we do often, we ought to work hard to overcome those differences for the sake of the gospel. We are to stand united in a common spirit. That's the first way we are to live as on earth as citizens in heaven. The second way we are to stand firm as citizens of heaven is that we are to stand united with a common purpose. We're to stand united with a common purpose. Look again at verses 27 and 28. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel. In no way, alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign, to, uh, a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. The word mind there toward the end of verse 27 is actually the word soul, which is often used as a synonym for mind or heart. The soul is the core of the person. It's who you essentially are. It's the immaterial part of us that thinks and believes and desires and makes commitments. And so by saying with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, Paul's focus is on the common purpose or common commitment that we all ought to have. And that common purpose is the advance of the gospel. This is the purpose for which we must strive together. And calling us to strive together, the clear implication is that we're engaged in something that isn't easy. We're engaged in a, a spiritual battle that requires intention and strategic effort. In battle, all kinds of differences get set aside in favor of uniting for a common purpose to defeat the enemy. It may be, it may be that after a tour of duty, soldiers go back to their own homes 
They engage in their own hobbies. They cheer for their own sports teams. They prioritize their own life goals. But during battle, all of those differences get set aside and they all focus on one purpose. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Beloved, we are at war. The world is set against the Lord and his Christ and against the gospel. The devil is the God of this world and he blinds the minds of unbelievers to prevent them from seeing and believing the gospel. He is out to disable and distract believers from being effective witnesses and ambassadors of Christ. And his strategy is to divide and isolate. He wants to divide churches and isolate believers. He loves nothing more than to capture believers with with lies and distractions and fear and pride, all of which keep them from dying to themselves and banding together with other believers to advance the kingdom of God. You know, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devils, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith. The devil is alive and he's been around for a long time so he knows how humans think. He knows our weaknesses and he knows how to get us off track. Now, we can fight on our own. We can venture into the battle and engage in that spiritual battlefield. Striving together for the sake of the gospel does not deny the Holy Spirit's ability to empower us to engage in that spiritual battle on our own and to live for Christ. But listen, to insist on fighting alone is a rejection of the Holy Spirit's instructions on how we are to live. Sometimes Christians think they don't need anybody else because they have the Holy Spirit. I can worship, I can grow, I can evangelize, I can do everything God calls me to do without being part of a local church. Sure, they might attend somewhere, you might even be a member here. But by and large, your life is lived independent of other believers. No one really knows you. No one has the ability to speak into your life. You you don't tell anyone about your sorrows and your struggles. You're trying to live the Christian life by yourself, thinking, I have the Holy Spirit, so I have everything I need. But in so doing, you are denying the Holy Spirit. Because it is he who tells you to join yourself with other believers. Strive with others for the sake of the gospel. Commit yourself to those who are pursuing Christ and discover the many benefits that come when we run the race of faith together. So we are to strive together. Now again, notice what Paul says our common purpose should be there. He says at the end of verse 27, for the faith of the gospel. This is a unique phrase which could mean the faith which is the gospel or faith based on the gospel, but either way the intention is the same. We are to strive together for the advance of faith in this world. We do this by defending against error, as Jude wrote, contend earnestly for the faith once handed once uh, for all, Excuse me, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The word contend there really means to fight. And we learn from Paul that, uh, that we don't fight people. We fight ideas. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, for we walk in the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so we are to uphold truth and righteousness, demonstrating the goodness and the beauty of God's revelation. We are not to compromise. 
We are not to try to find points of agreement so that we can just get along with the world. And we're certainly not to set aside the truth to be liked by the world. We are to speak the truth in love, upholding it with fidelity and clarity and without compromise. That is how the gospel advances, when the truth is proclaimed. And then those to whom God grants the gift of repentance and faith believe when they hear the gospel, and then we want another person into the citizen, into the, into the kingdom of God to join in the battle. Now, as we engage in striving together for the faith of the gospel, we will experience persecution. In every age and in every place, there are those who are opposed to the gospel. In Jerusalem, it was the Jewish leaders who were afraid of losing their influence among the people. In Philippi, it was Paul. When Paul was there the first time, it was the idol makers who were losing money because so many people were getting saved. In Rome, just a few years after this letter was written, it was Caesar who hated any perceived threat to his rule and lifestyle. Today, it might be a political party or other organizations promoting ungodly causes. For some of you, it might be your own family. It might be your bosses or your coworkers. I mean, just recently, I've had conversations with two different people about how if they were to not participate in sin-promoting activities, that would result in the cutting off of their family. Companies are firing employees who don't celebrate immorality. Athletes are being suspended for speaking the truth publicly. Ministries are getting banned from social media for affirming biblical morality. Now, right now, those seem to be more isolated situations, but the pressure in society is mounting, and the forces of those opposed to Christ are starting to coalesce more and more. Believe it or not, if the Bible is true, and it is, There will come a time where there is no country that will be safe for the Christian. But no matter how light or how severe the opposition is, look at how Paul says the Philippians are to respond. Look again at verse 28. He says, In no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't be alarmed, don't be intimidated. Don't let their bravado and their threats and whatever power and influence they have cause you to shrink back. If they fire to threaten you, excuse me, if they threaten to fire you, (laughs) stand firm, striving firm together with the faith, uh, for the faith of the gospel. If they threaten to to cut cut themselves out of your lives, stand firm, striving together for the faith of the gospel of the gospel, if they threaten to take your life and are about to do so, stand firm with confidence. After all, what is the worst they can do? The worst they can do is give you a fast pass to the presence of Christ. And whatever suffering they inflict gives you the opportunity to imitate your Savior in His sufferings. There is nothing that the world can do that can ultimately harm you. So don't be intimidated. In Luke 12, Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. When we rightly fear God, we will fear no one else. And we can stand firm in the face of opposition. We will be calm, collected, and at peace. Just like our Lord was when he stood before the high priest and Pilate and Herod. Now this kind of calm, this kind of response causes those who threaten to take a step back. It raises the question, wait a minute, why are they not afraid? Did you see what Paul said there in verse 28? Not not alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign 
of destruction for them. Whether they recognize it in the moment or not, the world's inability to intimidate believers is a sign that things will not go well for them. I'm reminded of Psalm 2 where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and and cast away their cords from us. This tells us a a day in the future, partially fulfilled at the time of Christ, but it it will be more completely fulfilled in the future when the forces of mankind will gather together to get rid of God. And here's the response according to Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. When you think you have power and authority and strength to defeat your enemy with overwhelming force, and instead of of shrinking back in fear, your enemy just stands there and laughs? That's a cause for concern. What do they know that I don't know? What do they have in their arsenal that I'm not aware of? The reason Goliath had such confidence is because everybody cowered in fear at him. But imagine if Israel and not just David believed God and laughed at Goliath. That would have been a shock to this giant who's only ever seen terror in the eyes of his enemies. The enemies of the cross are blind to how ineffective they actually are. They always think they can stamp out the gospel when all they ever do is spread the gospel. The only time our enemies succeed is when we shrink back, when we keep silent, and we prefer our own safety and comfort. But when we respond properly, it is assigned to them of their destruction. There is another result of not being intimidated that you see there. Paul says not only is their inability to intimidate believers a sign of their destruction, he also says at the end of verse 28, but of salvation for you in that too from God. Opposition that comes to us for the sake of Christ and our right response to it is a sign of our salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In short, opposition connects you to the long line of faithful believers. And so rejoice that you have been counted worthy to stand in that line behind them. You know, in Acts 5, Peter and John stood before the council of Jewish leaders for the second time. The first time they had commanded them to stop preaching Christ, a command which Peter and John ignored. The leaders said, now the second time, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Let me just pause there. I was just reading this passage a few weeks ago in my read-through of Acts. And it occurred to me that there was something the crowd said to Pilate when he was trying to release Jesus. Do you remember what it was? The crowd said, his blood be upon us and on our children. And now they're saying, you're trying to bring this man's blood upon us. Unpause. (laughs) To that, Peter responded, we must obey God rather than men. Some of them wanted to kill these apostles on the spot, but cooler heads prevailed and they were flogged and commanded not to proclaim Christ, and then let go. How did they respond? Acts 5.41 says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been, been considered worthy of suffering shame for his name. 
And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They interpreted their their suffering to mean that they had been so faithful to Christ that they were now being identified with Christ by their opposition and experiencing the same sufferings of Christ. So suffering was a confirmation of their identification with Christ. That's what it means that our inability to be intimidated is a sign of salvation. So Hope Bible Church, we are to stand united with a common purpose, to proclaim Christ no matter what opposition comes. We won't be intimidated. We won't back down. We won't keep silent. We will strive together for the faith of the gospel. And when we suffer, we will take that as a sign that we have been saved by Christ because we are suffering just like him. That brings us to our third way in which we must stand firm. We're not only to stand united under a common spirit, in a common spirit, we're to stand united with a common purpose. We're also to stand united under a common experience, under a common experience. Look again at verses 29 and 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. When I say that we are to stand united under a common experience, I mean that we are to endure suffering knowing that the experience of suffering for Christ is what we've been called to. All believers have been called to suffer for Christ at some level. But to simply call call it a, a calling miscommunicates a little bit. Note how Paul says there, for to you it has been granted. The word granted means to give as an act of grace. This particular word choice that Paul uses, to give as an act of grace. So what Paul is saying is you have been given by God's grace the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ. Just as our salvation is a grace gift, it's the outpouring of God's kindness and mercy and love on on us, which we did not deserve, so it is with suffering. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift of grace from God. This is one of those gifts that if we were honest and we had the choice, we would probably decline. (laughs) But think about this. Jesus left eternal glory and and the perfect environment of heaven to take upon himself a body and a human nature so that he could identify with us. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was, has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus identified with us. Jesus left the the shining streets of glory to walk on our dusty roads. Jesus left the place of eternal satisfaction and in thirst, he drank our water. Jesus left the the life-giving atmosphere of heaven and breathed our putrefied air. He was rejected by his own people and betrayed by his friends. He did not have a family even that believed in him, at least not during his earthly life. And then if that weren't enough, he left his perfect sinlessness and he took upon himself our sin and suffered the the wrath of God that was due to us. He who had enjoyed perfect love and unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity, for the first time, 
experience the fury of the Father so that we might experience the love of the Father. And Isaiah 55, excuse me, 53 says, not only did he take our sins upon himself, he also carried our griefs and our sorrows. He suffered for our sake. He died on our behalf. And as a result, those who believe on him are saved from the wrath of God. Those who repent have their sins forgiven. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins are made alive and freed from eternal punishment. We're given eternal life. And friend, if you're here and you have not bowed the knee to Christ, I would plead with you to do that today. To acknowledge the fact that you are a sinner and you are destined for the wrath of God because of your sin. But praise Him that He has given His Son to accomplish salvation, to pay the penalty for sin so that you could be saved. Believe in Him today. If Christ has done all of this for us, if if He has so identified with our weakness and taken our sin and our suffering upon Himself, what a joy and a privilege it is for us to suffer for Him. He who gave up eternal and infinite glory to identify with us, how can we not give up finite and temporary comfort to identify with him? With all that he gave up for me, I will gladly suffer for him. Would you? There is nothing that can be taken from us which he has not lost more. There is no suffering we can experience which he has not suffered more. There is no sacrifice we could make which he has not made more. And add to this, the fact that after our suffering is over, what comes to us is glory. In the same way that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, which was the salvation of his people, we can endure suffering for the joy that is set before us, everlasting glory. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Now, why is the revelation of His glory something to be exalted about? Well, because of Colossians 3.4, which says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with Him in glory. Suffering is the joyous, joyous privilege of the believer. And so we must stand united under that common experience. Now in closing, notice what he says there in verse 30 again. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Some interpret this as referring to the same sufferings of Paul, especially to his imprisonment, which he obviously is in now and had experienced in Philippi. But there's no indication that the believers there were being imprisoned. He doesn't say anything about that. And, and Paul was in Philippi, was in prison in Philippi for less than 24 hours. Also, the word struggle there in the NAS could also be translated, excuse me, conflict could be tra- translated struggle. Colossians 2.1 uses the same word where he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. That verse is also significant because that, that word I have is the same word here translated experiencing. So you could translate verse 30, having the same struggle you saw in me and now here to be in me. And then he says, as you notice, that this struggle, this conflict is in me, not outside of me, in me. It's the same of what he says in chapter 4, verse 9, when he says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So he's talking about his personal example there in in chapter 4, verse 9, of of thinking and living, not his external circumstances. Now, what what conflict, what struggle in him has he revealed to them when, when he says that you now hear this is in me? Well, the struggle of verse 23 and 24, 
where he says, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for you. With all that in mind, the, the clearest sense here is that when we stand united under the common experience of suffering, we will also share the common experience of that internal struggle of longing to be with Christ, for that is far better. And yet knowing that there is much work to be done here on earth. As citizens of heaven who live on earth, we long for the day when our king will come and take us to himself and we can be with him forever. But until that day comes, there are innumerable needs on this earth that only citizens of heaven can fill. No one but the citizens of heaven can proclaim Christ on this earth. No one will uphold true justice and righteousness. No one but the citizens of heaven can demonstrate God's design for relationships and marriage and parenting and education and work ethics. No one except citizens of heaven can put God's character on display and re represent Christ to the world. So as long as the Lord, our King, keeps us here on earth, we have a lot of work to do. And so, my friends, as citizens of heaven, let us live on earth, standing united in one spirit. Let us stand united with one common purpose. And let us stand united under a common experience of suffering. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we reflect on these truths, we confess how easy it is to think so independently. A lot of that comes from our culture and translates into our thinking of the Christian life. Forgive us for thinking that we don't need anyone else. Help us to learn how to live with one another, how to stand and strive together for the sake of the gospel. When there are divisions, when there is conflict, when there are differences, help us to, to learn how to work through them, elevating our citizenship over our preferences. Help us to not be intimidated by opposition, but to stand firm and rejoice when we are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Whatever happens in this coming week, as we represent you in our homes, in workplaces, in our communities, in our schools, glorify Christ through us and help us to stand together. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.